Welcome to PS Exhibitions Podcast. I am your co-host, Erica. And I'm Virginia. And today we'll be joined by our guest, Shannon Gross. We will be talking to Shannon about their work in our exhibition, Prism, A Refraction of Light for Pride Month. Hi, Shannon. How are you today? Oh, I'm just dandy. Thank you, Virginia. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Anytime. And thanks for having me. Of course. Um, So I thought we could do things a little bit differently to start off compared to our other podcast episodes um, where we could kind of quickly share our pronouns. So my pronouns are she, her. Um, My pronouns are they, them, their. And my pronouns are she, her, her also. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. So, Shannon, what is your background as an artist? How did you start? Where did you go to school? All those important little details. Of course. Um, well, I went to school at Gettysburg for my undergrad, and I got my BA in studio art. I don't know how I like started doing art. I think it's just something I kind of always did. Um, and it stuck. So here I am. And then most recently, I got my MFA in ceramics from Rhode Island School of Design. Okay. So did you ever, as a child, did you ever think that you're going to grow up to be an artist? Was that ever in the cards? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. I remember very distinctly in kindergarten. I loved art. I loved my kindergarten art class that I had. And I was already given this deep impression that, oh, no, if I become an artist, I will starve. And so, like, <laughs> I, like, I, like, quelled that as much as possible. Like, I, in high school, I thought I was going to be, oh, like, maybe a geologist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, like, a marine biologist. I was definitely on to, like, oh, yeah, I want to do something sciencey, And, you know, continuing to do art on the side. Right. And then I got to Gettysburg. And yeah, so things things definitely changed. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good for you and good for us. Yes, yes. I think ultimately, yes, a good choice. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I think going to Gettysburg, that was when I was like, oh, well, maybe I can be an artist. Maybe that's a thing that I can do. Right. Right. Someone told you it's okay to be an artist. You will you will be able to eat. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I think I started to see like, oh, wait, there's not just one way to be an artist. I also think it helped like I never felt good enough in high school. Like I didn't have the skills to do art. And I think part of that's because I never did any 3D work when I was in high school. Like it was all 2D, all painting and drawing. And then when I did ceramics, that was the first 3D work that I actually made. And like all the ideas that I had had for projects that just weren't working in 2D, suddenly like 3D, everything worked for once. And I was like, wait, no, this is this is something I can do. This is something I'm like actually good at. Right. Yeah. Something something clicked that didn't yeah, click like before. The epiphany, the epiphany happened. <laughs> yeah. And how did you get to that epiphany? Were there different resources at Gettysburg or was it kind of on through your own artistic experimentation there? Um, I got 
so much opportunity to experiment on my own. Like ceramics is really like the the key for all of that. I was not looking forward to ceramics. I I had been I decided at that point that I was going to double major. Like I had been an English major because you know I got diverted from science. I was like, yeah, no, English is like kind of artsy. We can do this. This is like sort of more practical. Um, barely, but you know that was my thinking at the time. And I decided to double major in studio arts and I had to take the ceramics class. And I hated the feel of the clay on my hands. I wore gloves every day for like the first week. Really? Yeah, because I hated it so much. And it was so hard. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Like, I think I cried like after every class that I had. Our professor started us, well, you know, Tina started us on the wheel right away. I was so bad at it. Mm -hmm. And I desperately wanted to be good at it. Um, so I practiced all the time. And then finally we got to hand building. And I loved drawing the figure. And one of the first projects that we did in hand building, she had us like pick images off the wall. I ended up doing like a master copy of like one of the oh figurative pieces that they had on the wall. And I just loved the process. And it came naturally to me as well like I didn't know like so many people have you know different things that they take to more easily and for some reason that was it getting to work in the figure in a different medium for once which is like it worked and was stubborn and kept doing it so <laughs> <laughs> no that that makes sense I I didn't realize that I don't want to say you struggled, but I guess you did struggle just like getting acclimated to clay because <laughs> however long I've known you, clay is, is just synonymous with who you are, I think, in my head. So that's really interesting. <laughs> oh, no, my family were, were all shocked when I decided I'm going to abandon my English major, just major in studio art, get the art history minor, and I'm going to go to grad school for ceramics. And they were like, you know, they didn't say no, don't do that. But they were all like, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> I thought you yeah. didn't like clay. Oh, that's so that's so fascinating, though, because I remember when I was starting ceramic work, <laughs> I was going to you for advice. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> That's because I spent, you know, my entire junior year in the right. ceramic studio, you know, to make up for the fact that <laughs> I wasn't very good at it when I started. I would have never known. Oh, well, good to yeah, hear. My secret's yeah, out. So, yeah, your secret is definitely <laughs> out. And I feel like definitely a couple people listening to this, I think, will be surprised. So. <laughs> Oh, well, fine. We always yeah. like to have a bit. That's true. Stunning revelations yeah. on the podcast here. <laughs> so early. I know. Who knows where this will go? Um, so looking at your artist statement, which kind of guides all of your work, um, you often look mm -hmm. to achieve what you call queerness in all its definitions. So I wonder if you could speak about the definitions of that that you have found in your own life or creative work. Right, of course. Um, so obviously queerness as an identity, um, to describe my sexuality and also my gender identity. Um, 
but also I think kind of taking that term and thinking about like, you know, the old usage of this usage of it, not as a slur, like I've always definitely been looking at this word as a positive thing, but maybe a strange thing, you know, queer can mean strange or uncanny or just like different than what is normal. I think I use that a lot to examine like, okay, I didn't always have the language necessary for me as a child to understand like why I didn't feel like a girl or why I wasn't straight or any of that. And queerness was kind of like looking back on things that I did as a child to sort of examine like, oh, maybe that thing you did was a little bit queer and kind of like building my own personal queer history through that word to see like what was different or what was odd. Right. Yeah. So I guess Uh, taking that question a little bit further and as a non-binary artist, how do you represent your own identity? And I think there are a lot of proclamations of queer identity that range from being very bold. So yesterday on the 13th, we focused on a post um, on typography and the use of words that have historically been used as insults. So a little bit like you were saying before, but they're also being reclaimed by the LGBTQ plus community. And even so, there are more reserved thoughts and theories about queer identity. So how do your works play into this spectrum, I guess? Right. Well, sometimes I'm very direct um, and I use typography in my own work. My um, one piece, the it's the Denicus Torelli, but... When I'm by myself, I just call it the Dunkleosteus because that's how I think of it. And that's the more like common lay term for that creature that has that head um, or had that head. But on the body of it, I have embroidered NB baby, NB baby over and over and over again. And that's just sort of like putting out there like this is how I feel about all of these dolls. All of these dolls are non-binary and they're little precious babies. And it's just a very direct sort of this is what it is. Maybe you're not seeing it if you're, you know, not looking for it because it's, you know, rather small, but it's still directly there. Um, again, like I like to play with the human figure a lot. So in these, in these dolls in particular, I've incorporated different forms of human genitalia, exploring like what different genitalia can look like because it's not just, you know, penises and vaginas. There's more variation than that. And also, like, different variations of genitalia don't define gender at all. You can have whatever body and have whatever identity. They're not inherently linked to one another and sort of trying to, like, force people to question, like, what could be the identity of this doll? I think we generally tend to, you know, feminize dolls because they're targeted towards girl children. but. I don't know, you get to play with that with, you know, they don't have human heads. You've got dinosaurs on some of these heads. You have sharks, you've got turkey vultures, you've got animals that you don't just necessarily associate with girlhood. Right. So trying to combine different aesthetics and put them together to make people rethink a little bit about 
what it is that they're seeing. That makes sense. I think this idea of juxtaposition is always um, in your work in some way, whether it's in, you know, the work itself or in how people perceive like your work, if that makes sense. But this idea of juxtaposition and playing with the mind. Yeah, and I do that with the materials, too. You know, these are fabric and ceramic, and maybe not everyone has this connotation with ceramics, but there's, like, this, definitely this undercurrent of macho-ism in ceramics. Like, there's this posturing white male figure who, you know, he throws large pots without his shirt on, and that's what he does. And you can see it on Instagram a little bit, but you can see it if you go back and, like, look at who the, like, big popular figures of ceramics were in the early 1900s and going up to modern day. Like, the people who are generally credited with propelling ceramics into, like, the field of art and not separated as, like, oh, this is craft versus this is art. They've generally been white men who do that sort of posturing, so put that with embroidery which everyone associates with feminine work and feminine craft again like playing with the materials have different connotations for me and for different people depending on what their background is and relationship with those materials yeah the idea of craft versus art is something that we've talked about on the show previously um in different contexts of course but I feel like if it was a male ceramicist, it was usually considered art. But if it was a female ceramicist or even a person of color, um, it was craft. Um, yeah. And it was separated. So it, it's, yeah, it's different, even within specific mediums. Yeah, totally. I think even the labor of creating these things too, of like you're throwing something that, you know, it's like a masculine labor. You need your whole body muscle, you know, to work that versus working on, especially in your pieces, they're, they're such beautiful, small, delicate moments of embroidery, like which is traditionally associated as, you know, as feminine work. And it's, you know, very, very intricate. So I think that's, that's another interesting perception too, to kind of throw off, you know, what are we looking at here? Yes. And I would like to like add to that the embroidery was much more labor intensive than the ceramic really? parts of those <laughs> dolls. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so much more. It takes so many more hours to do that little fiddly work. But you know, it, they have that perceived notion of like, oh yeah, it takes your whole body, you've got to muscle through this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think. It's also hard to judge when it's a digital exhibition about the materiality and the scale of some of these pieces. So I don't know if you could speak a little bit about how those two um, two things function into the creation of your work. Of course. Um, generally, I work in a variety of scales. I like to work big. I like to work small. But for this series specifically, I wanted to create something precious. And it's one of the things that you don't get in the exhibition space, whether it's virtual or in person, because, you know, most of the time you don't get to handle the artwork. But in the studio, you hold it and there's a weight to it. 
but it's tiny and you have to hold it in the crook of your arm. So it's like holding a little baby and it gives you this moment of, oh, this thing is precious. And that's the sort of feeling that I wanted to create with these dolls. I need to create this like personal moment. You mix in a couple different mediums. So how does working in ceramics differ from paper or embroidery in the sense of materiality and how you even approach um, the concept of making a new work? Well, part of it's the process. Um, Embroidery is something you get to pick up and put down whenever you please. So, and it has more portability. So you don't have the same considerations as working with paper and clay. In my paperwork, I approach it from a very like ceramics driven point of view in I'm, you know, physically making my paper and it has to go through a process of drying and shredding and being pulped into all this like messy little stuff that I have to then sculpt and let it dry. And you have that with ceramics too. You have, you make the thing, you have to let it dry for a little bit before you can do certain kinds of work. And then you have the process of firing and then glazing and firing again. And sometimes firing takes days and days. So for the specific pieces, I'll do the clay work first. I'll do like the greenware clay work first of sculpting. And then while I'm waiting for that to dry, I'll work on the embroidery bits um, and the sewing. For these ones, I used a pattern. Um, I drafted a pattern based off of an old rag doll that my neighbor had made me when I was a kid. She was teaching me how to cross stitch and how okay. to sew. And and she ended up making me my own little rag doll. So I used that as the basis pattern for these pieces. And after I had that, each doll was made at a separate time. But different parts of the process were all being done at the same time, like while the clay dried. I work on the fabric pieces. And then while clay was firing, I would work on the embroidery. And at the very end, that's when you get to put it all together and see if it works. <laughs> Hopefully it works. You really hope that it works. In the final stages of putting everything together, are you sometimes surprised as to how it comes out? Or did you plan it so well that this is exactly how you thought it would be. Does that make sense? Yes, I would love to say that anything that I made was exactly planned out and turned out how I thought it would be. I try to plan my things very meticulously, and in the end, there's always something that I have to change. I'm like, oh, well, I put it together, but I need a ruffle. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. Like, maybe it's just like I need to keep adding. I'm never satisfied. I'm like, I have to keep adding to the thing. Um, I will say, though, like, the one thing that I don't always have planned out is the genitalia portion of a piece, mm-hmm. a, like, of those dolls. If I'm going to add any genitalia at all, or if I'm going to leave them without genitalia, because none of right. some of them don't have yeah. obvious genitalia markers, or they'll have, like, one and not the other. Um, the goblin shark piece, like it has markers of pop surgery on its chest. They're very subtle um, with buttons and stitches underneath, but then it doesn't have any right. bottom genitalia. So 
those sorts of things, those I I leave toward the end after I've gotten to know the thing, I guess, is what happens. Like, I have the idea in my head, and then I have to get to know the individual in piece to see what it needs to be yeah, actually finished. I like that idea. And I think sometimes I like to imagine that ceramics and even the process of making paper is almost like, it's like a living being in a way. And so you're creating a living, another living being almost out of material mediums that are also living, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah. They are, they are little children <laughs> that you have to take care of. They require a lot of attention. <laughs> a lot of care you know and you have to make sure that they're well read and educated too so they get to live between exhibitions so is there a process for naming these sculptures oh they just have the scientific names of the animal creature that they're referencing and all of these animals are creatures that i was fascinated with as a child that I adored <laughs> these are these are my favorite animals that I've put on these on these creatures um and I was I was very interested in science as a kid so I wanted to pay homage to that and their naming and some of these creatures are extinct and some of them are still living is there any animal that you want to do but haven't had the opportunity to create yet? I want to do a pair of axolotls. I have one of the heads sculpted and I wanted to do like you have the pink ones and you have like the black green axolotls and I wanted to do a pair that lived together but I haven't gotten to do the pink sculpture of the head yet. So once I get to do that then I can finish sculpting the fabric okay. parts and get that piece finished but I want to do that one, but then after that, I think I will probably be done with that series. Maybe 10 years from now, I'll go back to it again, but I have this bad habit of I'll like make six to 10 pieces in an idea, and then I'll be like, well, that's good for now. Let's do something different. <laughs> yeah, you'll need like the next generation in like 10 to 15 years. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I could probably like, oh, maybe a Tamandua. That would be that would be a lot of fun. I like to choose creatures with very like characteristic heads, because otherwise, you know, like some animals are defined by their bodies, and some of them, like, yeah, they're they're very distinct from their heads. And I'm not including any any parts of their body to distinguish them. That part is all human doll rag baby, and so they have to have very distinct heads. That's like my one condition for choosing animals. You gotta know it when you see it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, so when you're working on these, are you working in the studio? You have to have certain resources, but then did you work at all on these during quarantine or how did that process go? So these pieces were made when I was in grad school. So I had oodles of resources at the time. <laughs> um, they are... Right now, I don't really have access to kilns, which is part of why I haven't gotten to continue the axolotl pieces. And part of why I ended up switching to paper um, 
you just need certain space and you need to be able to fire certain things. And it's a lot easier to get your work in a community center to fire, like if you need to fire your work, if you do functional wear. But because I do sculpture, I have very specific needs for how I want to fire a piece and for how I want to load it in the kiln. And not all not all places, and that's not all places can handle that, depending on like what their guidelines are. Um, and you know, unfortunately, I've got this itch to make huge work, which doesn't really work unless you're in a university setting where you have access to really big kilns. <laughs> yeah, thinking about university and in school um you have been an educator for a couple years now so what is it like teaching students compared to completing your own work are there major similarities how does it differ things like that oh i feel like they're not similar at all and that's why i like doing both of them i I, I really like teaching. I don't, I think I avoided being a teacher for a long time because everybody and their mother in my family is a teacher of some sort, whether it's high school or elementary education. And so I didn't really think I'd go down that path. But then I was being a teacher assistant when I was at Gettysburg. And I really enjoyed that. I liked helping people figure out and troubleshoot their own ideas. And to like see them, especially throwing, even though, you know, I don't make that much functional wear, helping people learn how to throw is one of my favorite parts of teaching because when they get it, they get it. And you like, you can see when it clicks for the students and like how happy they are because at that point when it clicks and they understand how to throw, they just start improving by leaps and bounds. You know, that was the hardest part for me when you get to see your students reaching that point and pursuing like their own artistic goals once they finally gotten those like necessary skills down that's wonderful but making my own work i'd say is more frustrating i think teaching can be more rewarding than making my own art i love making my own art and i have to keep doing it but i think it's not always as immediately like rewarding in the same way that teaching is <laughs> right it's a lot judge your own progress versus your students. Like I can clearly see how my students are progressing in the ways that they're improving their work and how they want to represent their art. But self-reflection is always harder. <laughs> yeah, the gratification might come easier with students than with yourself. Yes. Are there any moments where it, you're kind of learning in reverse, where your, your students are helping you learn and discover new things in your own work? Oh, yes. I think you don't really know how to do a thing until you have to teach it to somebody else. Then then you really know how to do a thing if you can explain how to do it. And then, you know, I've been doing ceramics for a few years now. So when I have to teach it, I have to relearn how to do it because, you know, it might not come naturally for everybody to be like, yeah, I need to score and slip this entire piece unless I'm hovering there being like, no, you really, really need to score that, that part right there, please. They don't believe you when, they, when you tell them that you have to score every part of it. <laughs> but like, 
there's little things that like I they've just become part of the process of making for me. Like I'm a hand builder, so like coiling and scoring my work is like what I do all day when I'm sculpting. But they're still learning these hand motions and how to make them comfortable for themselves. And I have to go back to thinking like I don't know how to do this sometimes when I'm teaching to figure out how to explain it to them or how to show them. And that's part of one of the worst parts of ceramics is, oh, a lot of it is physical. And so you have to figure out how to make your muscles and hands do the thing. And there's no way to explain to somebody how to make your muscles and hands do the thing sometimes until they figure out, like, this is the comfortable way to do it. Yeah, I think <laughs> there's probably a lot of muscle memory happening for you. But sometimes, oh, yeah, there's a lot of muscle memory happening. And then I have to remember, like, oh, I don't know, like, maybe... I think when I'm teaching throwing, I go back to making my own throwing work and it gives me fresh ideas about how to do things. Or, you know, sometimes you have a student who wants to approach something in a way that is unconventional from how mm -hmm. I was taught. And then in those moments, I'm like, well, is this a bad way to do it? Or should we go ahead and do it this way? And it ends up mostly being like, is the student, you know, okay with the piece now working out? Like, I have accepted that things are going to go wrong in ceramics because there are kilns and there's glaze and there's inconsistent conditions in the studio, depending on what the weather is like that day. So I'm like, things are going to go wrong. And that's really hard as a first time student to just accept that things are not going to go your way in the studio and that right. you can't control everything that's happening. And when students have like new ideas of how to do something, if they're okay with it failing, then we get to learn so much more than sometimes if we have to like, you know, pursue the traditional route of things. I, I think it's more fun if we all get to mess up. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it goes back to something I said earlier that I think it's important to consider ceramics as this living being that it is going to constantly change depending on so many different factors that are completely out of your hands uh, and you just have to accept it yeah no it's just a firing is not gonna look the same every single time unless you have the same exact stack in the kiln every single time that's just not gonna work out that way you have to learn to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Like, there are so many different layers of actually making the process. So how does that intercept into your work? So relating to time and the many things that could go wrong in ceramics. Does that make sense? Yes. I'd say, like, that the making of it is, like, the first layer of our time is important, just the amount of time that it takes to make a thing is embedded into the work itself. And when you look at it, you can see, oh, this took a long time to make. But then you add the other layer of the animals, especially the prehistoric ones that I have or the extinct ones that I have. Like there's another layer of time there of like 
where the visual references are coming from, I like to include a long, a, a wide range, I'd say, of different like elements of time. So it's like, okay, this element is prehistoric. This element is personal time. So I use recycled fabrics and I generally get them from family members or from friends, like scraps of clothing that they don't want anymore, um, <laughs> for sure. And like pieces of costumes that people like maybe wore one time or I'll like go to a thrift store and, you know, scowl the racks for mm -hmm. where the cool patterns are. And so there's like different layers. I like to layer different timelines in there of potential personal history. So it's like one piece was made with my sister's shirt. She's seven years older than me. So there's a different timeline in there. And then I get to add my own timeline because I feel like one of the threads that it keeps going through all of my work is this idea of like, creating a false queer history or rewriting history so that it is more queer. So generally when we learn history, we learn it from a pretty cis and heteronormative perspective. We don't always get like what the queer stories are or we think of like queer people as being like a modern day invention and oh people weren't like that back then and so like I for these dolls I wanted to create objects that kind of look old like they could be a family heirloom like maybe maybe it's the like china doll that your mother has sitting on her shelf or like your grandmother had like it's not a toy that you play with anymore because it's too fragile for that so for these ones, like these different pieces of fabric and visual references and the even like the type of doll that it is, it's a rag doll. So it has specific roots to where I come from culturally in South Central Pennsylvania. It takes on like this idea that maybe it could be this queer heirloom, even though it's not, I made it. But I wanted to emit sort of like an idea that maybe it could have all these different histories tied into it together. I see that. And especially, like you said, you're using fabric that could have been from your sister's shirt. So it is bringing each piece or each material as its own history. And you're just combining it, really, to create um, a more evolved narrative mm -hmm. and you know the ceramic part's gonna last for a long long time the fabric pieces may last they may not but archivally those ceramic pieces they're gonna be around for ages and ages right so they get to continue living on in history and actually become what i want them to be now right yeah so the pieces are only just beginning i guess in a way too that you had an entire process of making them but they will you know carry on as they are together um and have a different a different route even that is my hope <laughs> <laughs> well we're gonna try to make that happen for you shannon oh thank you <laughs>
No, but I love that. I love just taking agency over history and rewriting things. And it's, it's just amazing. It's so cool. And it's, it's amazing to, you know, you see these images on the Instagram page, but to hear in your own words, how these, this process is evolving and these are so much more than these uh, sculptures, there's more to it. Well, thank you. <laughs> Do you work with art history in any of your other projects or rewrite history in any other way? In my, I did a small series where I made copies of the Venus of Villendorf. And those were ceramic pieces. And those ones, those ones were pretty blatantly. Um, part of it, part of the idea of it came from actually an art history class that I was taking in grad school. And I was examining different way that art history has done readings of the Venus of Villendorf. And, you know, there's, you know, Oh, the widely accepted reading that the way that her body is shaped and formed is referencing like fertility and this like very uh I don't want to say stereotypical form of womanhood, but like this image of womanhood as being all about fertility and childbearing. Very canonized. And then Yes, That's the yes, art thank history you. Term. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I know there's a reason I like art history people. Um, but then, like, more recently, there's been this other idea, like, oh, maybe these were being made by women looking down at their own bodies. Like, say they don't have mirrors. They don't, they aren't looking at their bodies from, like, that sort of self-reflection but they're looking down if you think about the proportions of the venus of villendorf you don't really see her facial features you have an idea of the texture on her head so that's been given some detail but that's that's a detail that you can feel you don't necessarily need visual language to render that and then the rest of the body the most emphasis is given to her breasts and her hips but if you look down at your own body that's what's most emphasized because you've got that skewed viewpoint mm. And then, and I like I liked that reading. I was very interested in that reading. And then I tried to take it a step further to say, like, who's to say these individuals identified as women? Our modern day concept of what womanhood is is a modern day concept of womanhood that has not always been tied to genitalia or chromosomes the way that it is today. Those are modern ideas. And so then. That's where I decided, okay, well, I'm going to make my own little Venus of Villendorf, and they're all going to have this modern-day queer language sort of, like, thrust upon them <laughs> to make people, I don't know, maybe question what they were looking at or question, like, what you're reading in history might not necessarily be wrong, but it might not necessarily be the only way to think about right. it. Right. Yeah, I think especially looking at history, I think not necessarily historians, but people like to imagine that people from the past lived in one particular way and only adhered to one yes. set of ideas. And that wasn't true. Um, you know, they're very much like us yes. today that they have these evolved personalities and behaviors. Yes. Yeah. We haven't been around that long. We're complex beings now. There's no reason to think that they weren't complex beings then. Right. At least not to 
anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, their thoughts and feelings exactly. were probably similar or similar to us today in some ways. Yeah. Exactly. Like, even coming off of Francesca's conversation that you had in the last podcast episode, it's like, humans have always been the same, though, at the core. Like, you want to define ourselves some way. No, you know, whether it's if you're a trained ceramicist or you're just trying to define yourself through clay, back with creating the Venus of Lillendorf. Right, and you can see that immediately because what is early man doing? Like, whatever, like, what do we see of early man? We see his art or her art or their art. It's everywhere. That's how we get to know them. Of course. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I think it's in relating to your work and our exhibition and the idea of of thinking about the past i think people were always will always be questioning their identity of who they are who they have been and who they have yet to become um i think that's always part of the human experience and it transcends time periods and locations and everything um so yeah, I think people need to not always place people in certain boxes. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's kind of one of the I think it think of it as like a privilege as being a trans person and non-binary a person is like having to do that self-reflection that you have to do that. Mm -hmm. That's just part of the experience but not not all cis straight people have ever thought to examine themselves like Part of the trans experience is, is having to examine your gender and figure out what that is. Right. I don't, I don't know many cis people who do that or have even thought to do that. Maybe if they know another trans person, they've done that. Yeah. But to question your own gender as, like, what is prescribed as the normal gender for your body. I think it's kind of sad to not do that and get to explore that. I think it's an interesting idea. And I think yeah. it, even, it even goes beyond just considering your own gender. I think it considers like every single behavior and every single action you take on a daily basis. You know, it's like, why did I choose this dress today? Why did I choose these shoes today? Like, why is my hair this way? Mm -hmm. You know, very, um, I guess those are very physical things, but even, you know, like, what are my no, particular interests? Like, why, why is that part of me? And how does it relate to my identity and gender identity and sexual identity? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, questioning those things, I feel like they can give you a fuller experience of yourself. And I make experiencing just like, being every day more joyful. Like, I love being trans. Do cis people love being cis? I, I think about that sometimes. Like, do cis people love being cis? Have they had the chance to love their gender? Right. I don't know that. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like that's definitely going to be different. Um, male versus female, I think. Um... And I think I think the female body, I mean, speaking as a woman, I think the female body um, 
goes through a lot of trauma physically in its life um, that a male body doesn't necessarily have to endure. For sure. For sure. Maybe it would just be better if people thought there are a lot more layers and a lot more juxtapositions um, to to life and to everyone else's experiences. Maybe that's that's a that's the yeah. simplest answer, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think I just hope that everybody's having as much fun in their identity as I'm having now. I can't say I've always had fun being trans. Like there's that it's hard. But like overall, I'm so much happier being trans and knowing that I'm trans than like assuming that I'm cis. And I wonder like how if everybody thought of their gender and not necessarily questioning it, but like found the parts of it that they liked. Right. And got to explore that more because again, like women, women and female bodies, like there is all that trauma. Yeah. So where, where are the bits that you get to enjoy so that you can love it? Right. Yeah, no, that's a really theoretical conversation. <laughs> um, but I think it's important. I think everyone needs to hear it. I think everyone else needs to consider it within themselves as well. But I'm, you know, I'm really happy to hear that you are happy, so that you are happy with who you are. And that's the most important thing, I think. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. No, I'm having a blast. I love that. Good. Good. Yeah. I just had top surgery and I'm feeling everything's good. Everything's great. And I can't wait to like be able to make work again. I feel like that's the hardest part of the surgery has been like, oh, I can't lift anything heavy or pull anything heavy. Like, the restriction for me has been, like, 20 pounds. Like, 20 pounds is what my surgeon was like, no, you can't push, pull, lift 20 pounds or more. And, you know, one box of clay is 50 pounds. you got a 25-pound bag and a 25-pound bag. And I'm like, yeah, oh not happening. <laughs> How do you think it's considered? And I've been making paper. Like, that stuff's heavy, too. I've got buckets of it at home that I can't do anything with because I can't move them. Right. How do you think once you've once you've fully recovered, considering that ceramics is a very um, laborious uh, process, and how do you think that muscle memory is going to affect you? Have you thought of that yet? I think I'm tired. I think I'm gonna be very tired, and I'm gonna be worn out when I go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it'll be fine. Um, like the muscles are still there. I think there's, oh, well, for me, it was an obstacle. I wouldn't say it's an obstacle for everyone, but, like, there's a part of my body that was an obstacle and that I felt was getting in the way mm -hmm. when I was making I think that'll be gone and certain things will be easier for me now that I've gotten top surgery. But I think it will be different. I thought about it the other day even with just eating. You know, before... 
like if I was, you know, like being comfy and, you know, lacing on the couch and I was eating or drinking something, I would use my chest as a shelf. <laughs> but now my shelf is gone, which is great. But what do I do? Now? Yeah. <laughs> How do I run on the couch now? Who knows? I have to figure out a new position. So I'll probably be happy to do that in the studio as well, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll figure it out. You'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Retrain myself. Yeah. And I'll, you'll, I guess, physically, you'll almost have to remember certain things. And, and maybe it will even inform how you teach, too. Um, that, that it will evolve. Oh, my. Maybe my back will hurt less after throwing. I think your back will probably still hurt though. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's why I'm very like adamant about stretching. I always tell my students and they laugh at me, which they probably should laugh at me because, you know, why not? Um, but stretch every 20 minutes, like you really shouldn't be doing that repetitive motion for that long. It hurts your body. I'm only 26 and I feel it. Yeah. In my bones. Please don't do that to yourselves. Take your eyes away from that fiddly thing that you're doing and reset them by go looking at a landscape. Right, right. A landscape, not a painting. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm so, I'm so glad we were able to have you on. Um, I'm so glad you. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. No, you're very, you're very special to my own. Um, artistic and art historical process i think so thank you so much i'm so glad <laughs> you have touched the lives of many people shannon um so considering that <laughs> how um can people find you on instagram my handle on instagram is mix mx shanoon s-h-a-n three o's and another n um, you can also look at my work on my website, which is mixshannongross.com. And yeah, you can look at my work, send me emails if you have questions about, you know, how I do things or gender things, you know, like I'm very open to asking questions. If you don't know anything, that's okay. <laughs> um, curiosity is fine. And as I'm comfortable answering those questions i like to offer that to people who might be wondering like did i say something that was confusing or that they would like to you know talk about but sometimes the research even though there's lots of information available sometimes that can be daunting and you don't know what to look for that is very helpful so thank you so much thank you, thank you. <laughs> all right so Shannon's work will be part of our exhibition for the rest of the month, extending into early July. So please check Shannon's work out alongside our other wonderful artists. So until next time, bye. 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 <laughs>